Um, so now, for the scripture for the day. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We're jumping in back today to part two of where we were at last week of walking in the light in Ephesians chapter 5. And today what we'll be looking at is Paul's call to not just, or last week I guess we looked at walking in love and not just, or not walking in sexual immorality and greed. And today we're looking at not walking in darkness, but walking in the light. And so Paul begins this section in chapter 5 verse 8 and he says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, live as children of light. So today, Paul's making this huge contrast between light and darkness. And he begins by saying, you were darkness. Not you were in darkness, but literally, you were darkness. Darkness had become you. It's who you were. It defined you. And how many people do you think actually believe that they are darkness, let alone walking in darkness? Most people don't. But the most powerful story I've heard of this comes a number of years ago from a, a man named Yahil Denier. Yahil was a prisoner uh, during, for years during the Auschwitz uh, Nazi death camps. And he witnessed the horrific acts that were going on there, and specifically the acts of the chief architect of the Holocaust, Adolf Eichmann. There's a, a photo of Adolf in the little prison at the trial there. Eichmann was considered the chief executioner of the Holocaust considered one of the most evil men to ever walk the face of the earth, executed millions of Jews, not just adults, children of all ages. This is one of the most horrific humans to ever live on the face of the earth. Adolf had the idea, but this is the man that laid it out, that planned it out, that worked it out, and implemented it. And so at the end of the war, Adolf Eichmann was captured, but he escaped and fled to, in hiding to Argentina at the time. And, and when they held the Nuremberg trials at the end of the war to convict the Nazis of war crimes, Eichmann was not there to be tried because he was in hiding. Years later, in 1960, the Israeli secret police found him in hiding in Argentina and smuggled him out in the middle of the night back to Israel where they, they, they had a trial for him. And they televised it, the first of its kind. In fact, you could find the whole trial on YouTube the first time a trial like this was ever, was ever televised. And so at last, the most evil architect, kind of the world had ever known of the of the Holocaust, was, was put on trial, and they called for witnesses, and Yahil went forward. And when he saw Eichmann for the first time in 18 years since Auschwitz, Yahil began to talk about the horrors that he had watched Eichmann commit there in the, in the Nazi death camp. And then as he's beginning to speak, this happens. Watch the quick video. He literally collapses on the ground upon seeing him and speaking about him. If you keep watching, the judge just keeps pounding his gavel, trying to bring order back to the courtroom. And so uh, 
a little bit after this, on CBS News, 60 Minutes, Mike Wallace interviewed Yahil about this, and he, he played that very clip right there, and then he asked him, Yahil, what happened in the courtroom? And Yahil responded with this. He said, when I saw him being Adolf Eichmann, I suddenly realized that he was no demon. He was no Superman. He was an ordinary human being exactly like me, and suddenly I became terrified about myself. I saw that I am capable of doing the same things as him. He'll recognize that Eichmann was not an evil monster. He wasn't subhuman, just a, instead just a regular human living in darkness. And he was so overwhelmed with this reality that he literally fainted and collapsed when he recognized that the same capacity for darkness was within him. As Mike Wallace concluded his interview for 60 Minutes, he says this. He said, how is it possible for a man to act as Eichmann act? Was he a monster? Was he a madman? Or perhaps he was something even more terrifying than that. Maybe he was normal. Eichmann is in all of us. You know, many would say, no, that's not true. He's subhuman. He's evil. He's a monster. He's degenerate. He's not worthy of life. He's not worthy of redemption. He is beyond redemption. In fact, when I was working with the gangsters in South Africa, specifically those who were, were murderers and, and, and rapists and, and some of what were considered the most evil people at that time, it used to be the lo- we lived across the street from where this main area was that would work, and we were part of all these local messaging networks, and, and so many of our local neighbors and things, the things they would write on the groups about what was going on across the street when there were crimes is that exact kind of language, subhuman, animals, monsters, not worthy of life, beyond redemption. I mean, I was horrified more so by their responses than even, in fact, the very act that was being committed by these people living in darkness. I've heard many Christians in America even refer to people today that way. I mean, with all the polarization that we've seen going on in America in the last few years, there's even many Christians who refer to people of different political parties with the same kind of language reserved for that. Or people referring to presidents being like that. Or maybe we use that kind of language to refer, refer to abortion doctors or, or some Christians, a, a big thing now of, of talking about the drag queens that are reading the kids in libraries or whatever it is, people with some different agendas. It's so easy for us to dehumanize people who we disagree with that have different agendas than us. And social media has made it so much easier than ever. When people at that time, during the time of Eichmann, watched what was happening, they were trying to label him as subhuman and a monster. There was a journalist at the time named Hannah Arnett who wrote an essay and she said, no, he's not subhuman. By saying, she says, by saying that Nazis are subhuman, you're doing exactly what the Nazis did to the Jews, she said. The reality is, she says, that people, they are just like us. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are capable of the same things given the same circumstances. This is the darkness that Paul is talking about, that we have as all of humanity. And Paul is ensuring that the Ephesians don't live out of this darkness. He's saying that we are all capable, given the right circumstance, of the greatest levels of darkness. It's who, it's where we came from. You know, I've seen it many times, even with the most violent, hated criminals and, and rapists, that as they come to Christ, the guys I'm working with, they come to Christ, and then you get to see them the way God intended them to be. 
The men in the greatest degrees of darkness you could ever fathom. Men that would terrify you just to see them covered in tattoos from head to toe. The most violent, hateful, that do not care for the life of others in any way, shape, or form. When they come to Christ, they come out of the darkness into the light, and you get to see the way God intended them to be filled with joy and life and kindness for others. The same person that just months before would have no qualms about stabbing or murdering someone for no reason at all. They are not evil. They simply have simply not encountered the light, yes, of who Jesus is. And so Paul says, don't forget, you were darkness too. In fact, there's this great passage in the book of Titus where Paul talks about this. The letter of Titus is an interesting book because Paul has been going around planting churches and, and he's, he went to the island of Crete at that time. And Crete was famous, even by its own people, for being filled with lazy brutes and liars and gluttons and evil people and all these immoral people. It was a very immoral place. And Paul is planting churches there and he takes Titus with him. But then Paul has to go on to the next location. And so he leaves his disciple Titus behind on the island of Crete with the, with the, the requirement, now go and appoint elders in all the places across this island where we made churches. Go and find elders and, and teach them how to obey Jesus. And as Titus goes out to do that, when Paul leaves, he gets really exhausted because the people are a mess, not out of the church. Those in the church are a complete mess, right? It talks about them getting drunk during the day and them, them be fighting and them lying and stealing and all this other stuff, all this kind of immorality. And Titus is really discouraged. And so Paul writes him a letter called the letter of Titus from that circumstance. And here's what Paul, as he finishing the letter, he says this to, to Titus. He says, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. So Paul is kind of summarizing his argument, saying they need to be good examples to the body around them. Tell the Christians they must be a light to this area. They must live as Christ has lived. But Titus, who's incredibly frustrated by this point, he's like, the people aren't listening. They're not responding. He's ready to give up. And so Paul says, don't forget. Check out the next verse. He says, Titus, once we too, you and me, Titus, we were foolish and disobedient. You and me, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of envy and evil, and we, you and me, Titus, we hated one another. You get what he's saying? Titus, yeah, I know that they're a pain in the butt. I know they're in darkness, but don't forget, we were the same. Titus, you and me, we're no different than them. There is nothing different between how they're living and how we have lived. This is the Apostle Paul saying, we are the same. Don't forget this. We were in darkness. Don't give up on them. And he says this in verse 4 after that. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love to us, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Do you see the message here? He's saying, Titus, the only thing that separates you from the Cretans, from the sexually immoral, from the broken, from those people in such terrible darkness, the only difference between you and those terrible sinners is you have experienced the grace of God. That's the only difference. The only difference between you and Eichmann would say to you, you have experienced the grace of God. 
That's the difference. Otherwise, you're capable of the exact same thing. We've encountered His grace. That's what makes us different. It's not by our effort. It's nothing that we have done, he says. It's nothing that we have done. It is entirely the work of Christ. So Paul says, don't grow weary of doing good. Don't give up with a heart of loving the Cretans and pointing them to truth because we are no better than them. We're just clinging to God's grace and allowing his grace to transform us. We have seen his light. That is the only difference between us and them. Isn't that awesome? We were darkness, Paul says. The only difference is that we have experienced the grace of Christ. Jesus' light has shone upon us. This is what separates us from those still living in darkness. This is all that separates us from Adolf Eichmann. We are in the light because God made a path, not us. Because we have been accepted and given the free gift of grace by His death, by His work, and by His love. He made the path. Amen. We are no longer in darkness. Therefore, it's worth considering. In what ways do we look upon those with different worldviews in us that we consider in darkness? In what ways do we dehumanize those with different political beliefs or different worldviews or, or those who sin differently or even political leaders we disagree with? In what ways do we get disgusted by those whose lifestyles we find abhorrent and we put them as the them and the evil and the subhuman category. We can't be a light to a world that we vilify and hate and avoid. The only way we can be a light is by taking the light into those places and choosing to love. The only hope we have of being God's light to the darkness is when we actually love those who are in darkness. We can't do it from a distance, and we can't do it by vilifying them. Remember, but for the grace of God, we would be in the exact same place. But for the grace of God, we are capable of anything. Amen? All right, then Paul goes on. He says, now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. I mean, this is such a powerful word, and it's bathed in images that some of us may have, have been lost on us today, but the original readers would have understood this. You see, so often Jesus uses this language of light, and that he is light. The most powerful one is found in John 8, 12. He says this, I am the light of the world. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness, because you will have the light that leads to life. Or in Matthew, he says it this way. Now he doesn't say, I am the light. He says, you are the light of the world. Referring to his disciples, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus uses this language as, as light, and it's a central way that he communicates him coming into the world and his people going into the world. And the first time he says it, it's actually it's pretty amazing. When he says to them that he is the light of the world, he does so the morning after the Jewish festival of Sukkot, the festival of tabernacles. And it's on the final night of the seven days, they have this giant celebration called the illumination of the temple. Here's a couple images of it. During that celebration, there'd be four massive golden lampstands that were lit in the temple of Jerusalem and erected there. They were as tall as the walls of the city. 
And they had huge 65-liter bowls of oil would be carried to the top on these long ladders and set atop these, and it created these massive bonfires on top of these huge candlesticks that surrounded the temple. And it's written that when these, when these lampstands were lit with these massive flames, that all of Jerusalem was lit, not just the, the, the temple of, of Jerusalem. And they'd have this huge party before God and dancing before Him. And it was all of this was to celebrate God's presence as a reminder of when God was present to the Israelites in Exodus as a pillar of fire. It's a reminder of God being present to them, of a giant light leading them through the darkness, leading them as a people. And so Jesus shows up the morning after that final celebration. When he, he literally is standing at the base with these giant candlesticks, charred lampstands all around him. And Jesus, the morning after that celebration, stands there at the foot of these candlesticks. And he says, I am the light of the world. Isn't that amazing? It's not by accident. It's on purpose. He shows up that morning and he's comparing himself saying, I am not just a light of Jerusalem or of the Israelites, but I am a light of the world. And he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This is what Paul is referring to, right? He's saying that Jesus is proclaiming this incredible truth, that he is the light, and that those who follow him will have his light. And so now keep that image in mind as we come back to Ephesians. And he says in verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light of the Lord. Live as children of light. He's echoing what Jesus said. This is now our new identity. Just as Jesus declared to the world that he is light, now we are his light bearers. And we are called to walk in the light, just as Jesus walked in the light. We are called to live as children of light. As his followers, we reflect his light and life to the world. But again, remember, it is his light. It's his life that must shine through us. I heard an illustration of this that I love, comparing the sun and the moon. That when Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun. But when the sun sets, the moon comes up. And the moon is a picture of us, the church, the body of believers, because the moon does not have any source of power or light on its own. The moon simply reflects the light of the sun. It's the sun that is the source of light. The moon reflects the sun. And so the church shines not by our own light, not by our own power, but purely it's the light of Christ in us and through us that reflects to the world. So much so, Jesus says, that we don't just walk in the light, but we are his light. We embody it. And so that's our job as followers of Christ, to reflect Jesus' light and life to the world. And we do this by actually living and loving like Him. And that's our calling. We are no longer able to walk in darkness, but to reflect His light, to embody His light and His life to the world. You know, as a kid, I used to love, you know, reflecting light off my watch as a mirror, like into teachers' eyes and other people's eyes and stuff, right? You know, you can kind of see when the sun's coming in, you can kind of point it right where it goes. And I would also love just kind of putting into like dark shadows in, in a room and kind of find the darkest place in the room. And I could, you know, angle the light and move in such a way to get the light to light up that place of darkness and the nooks and crannies of the shadows that were around. And it kind of become a game of, you know, how do I point light into the darkest place? But that's our job now as Christians. Not to just point a mirror somewhere. But now as Christians, it's our job is for us to go to those dark places. 
to take the light of Jesus, the light of the world in us, and take it into the darkness. Into the darkness, the crevices, the shadows, those places where there's no light at all. That is our calling. Now we are his light, and we don't reflect from a distance, but we do it by being right in the middle of it, taking his light into the darkness of the world, into neighbors' lives, into the lives of friends, into family, and especially into whatever group of people is we've, we've written off as being anti-whatever we value or whatever we believe. Whatever that group is, we are called to take the light of Christ in us into those places of darkness, into the shadow. This is our calling as the body of Christ because we are light and it must shine through us. And there's another incredibly important point here I just want to emphasize. That Paul is saying we were darkness. We are now light. And that means that we are no longer dark and depraved, but we have a new identity based upon what Christ has done. We are now light in the Lord. That is our identity. It is who we are. Paul is saying, you are light. Jesus says it, you are light. There is no longer darkness, or darkness is no longer defines who you are, but you are now defined by light and by Jesus. And so live according to your identity. Could you imagine the story of the prodigal son as he runs away and, comes, and blows it all and comes back to his father? And if after the celebration, the reunion, and all the reconciliation, if the son continues after that point each day to say, you know, I'm just a messed up prodigal. I'm just a prodigal son. And then the father says, no, you're my, you're my son. You're an heir. You're not a prodigal. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You aren't just a prodigal. He says, no, 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 no. I'm just a useless, betraying prodigal. It's what I'll always be. I'm a reject who's only here purely by your, by your graciousness. The father would keep rebuking him and saying, no, you are my son. You are a child. Prodigal is not your identity. It is who you were. It's not who you are. Often, Christians, we hold on to our broken identities. I just want to emphasize this here. You know, for years, I've shared before, so my own past, that I mean, I believed I was a pervert. I believed I was broken, genuinely broken for years. Even as a missionary on the field, always fighting against this thing for years, that I'm just a sexually broken kid who's been abused and is just trying my best to survive. And the Lord said, no, that's not who you are. It took me so long to finally recognize that's not who we are. Yes, we all have brokenness. Yes, we all have things that have happened to us in areas of brokenness, but we need to be honest with it because that is not our identity. Abuse was done to me. It is not my identity. We're a new creation. We are light. We are in Christ. I mean, who here needs to hear that this morning? That you are not your past. You are not defined by the brokenness of the sins of the past. We are in Christ. You are not your sins and your mistakes. We are a new creation. We are not darkness anymore. We are now declared as light, as children of light. You know, remember last week we talked about where Paul says, don't engage in sexual immorality or greed. But then he goes on to say, for the sexually immoral, those defined by sexual immorality and those defined by greed, they're in grave danger. But he draws that massive distinction from those who fall into it and those whose lives are defined by it. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are no longer defined by those things. I am no longer defined by the abuse of my past. I spent years defining myself based on what some man did to me. I spent years believing I would forever be defined by those things, but it was a lie. I was once darkness. I am now in the light. Please, if you are defining yourself by darkness, hear the words of Jesus. 
It is who you were. It is not who you are. Repeat this with me, if you wouldn't mind. I was once darkness. Now I am light in the Lord. One more time. I was once darkness. Now I am light in the Lord. Oh, Jesus, speak your truth. For anyone that's holding on to those pains, Jesus, right now, speak your truth. For someone watching online, Lord, speak your truth. For those wrestling with those habitual sins that they've just caused to define themselves, that they've with self-hatred and no worth, Lord, speak your truth right now, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. This is what Christ has done. Nothing that we have done, it's what he has done. No matter where we've done, no matter where we've gone, no matter what's been done to us, in Christ we are his children and we are children of light. Amen. And once we get that, as we understand the joy of what it means to be in Christ, he then says we are called to live out this light. He says in the next verse, verse 9, he says, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And he says, and find out what pleases the Lord. He says that this is what the fruit of light looks like, goodness and righteousness and truth. Increasingly, this is what our lives should reflect and become. You know, in the verse we looked at before, Jesus said, our good deeds should shine before men like light, like a city on the hill. And the fruit of that light, he says, should be us reflecting who Jesus is to the world. And this is just another way of saying the same thing that Paul has said again and again and again in this text. In chapter 2, verse 10, he put it this way. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which Christ prepared in advance for us to do. We are called to live this way. Chapter 4, verse 24, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So this is not a new message. It's the same message, just with a, a different image. We are called to actually live in love like Jesus, to walk in love to walk in the light, to be the light. And the fruit of this should be a life of goodness, good works, righteousness, and holiness and truth. And then he says in verse 10, as we see, and find out what pleases the Lord. I love this. It's not just, so becoming like Jesus is not perfectly spelled out of every detail here. It says we're supposed to seek his face, to know what that looks like in our context, in our situation amongst our people and our peers and our lives. We're supposed to be becoming like Jesus, but it's different in our context. And so do we do that? Do we seek the Lord to find out what pleases Him in our lives, in the different areas of our life? Do we take time to ask Him about our use of social media and the way we communicate online? Do we ask before we write something and post it or send something, do we actually, Lord, say, does this please you? Imagine if every Christian would ask that question before hitting the enter button or the send button. Lord, does this message please you? Does this post please you? Does this comment please you? Before we're watching a movie or a show on Netflix or some other place, do we say, Lord, does this please you? Before we start speaking about someone else who's not present, Lord, does my speech please you? Is what I'm about to say about this person to this other person, is this pleasing to you, Lord? Do we do that? 
Maybe sometimes, but obviously not enough. Because how much would change if we actually did that? Lord, does this please you? I want to walk in the light. I want to reflect your light. Does this please you, Jesus? The way we talk about people we disagree with. Lord, is this communication pleasing to you? Don't run past this. I would honestly encourage you to reflect upon that, meditate, come back upon that during the week, and make it a practice. Say, Lord, does this please you? Is this bring beauty and goodness and righteousness and truth? Amen? We need to increasingly be reflecting the light of Christ, as he says. All right, then verse 11. He says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. So he continues that they are a new creation. So he says, don't engage in the darkness, but instead expose the darkness. And notice, how are the deeds exposed of darkness? Look at the context, verse 13. Today, most people think the way you expose darkness is you just post something about it on Twitter, or you just tell people why those people are so evil, or why those things are wrong, and you make a big stink about it. Is that what he says? Look at verse 13. How do we expose darkness? The darkness is exposed by the light shining into the darkness. And remember, how did he describe the light? By deeds of goodness and righteousness and truth, by truthing and love, as we talked about before, by reflecting the light of Christ to them in the way we live and love like Christ. Not just by yelling at them of what a terrible sinner they are, but by shining the light of Christ through our lives directly into the darkness. That's how light is exposed, by us being the light of Christ into the dark places of the dark shadows. And that means while we don't participate in the darkness, we must shine the light of Christ in those places. And we can't do that by making them the enemy, by declaring them subhuman, by saying that we will never engage or speak to them because they view things differently, by blocking them. So again, we are called to reflect the true light of Christ. Through our lives into the darkest part of the world, we must reflect Jesus. Like shining that mirror as a kid into the dark crevices and the corners. That is who we are called to be, to be the light. That's our calling, to shine light into the darkness. That is what exposes it. And again, if we dehumanize them or label people as enemy, when they are in the darkness, we have no hope of ever seeing them come to light. And remember this, when someone is in darkness, the only thing that separates them from us is the grace of Christ. We've seen the light of Jesus. Do not judge those who have not yet encountered it. Instead, be the light. Do you see the difference, church? For too long, too many Christians seen our judge is to go out and just remove ourselves from those people. But we are called to pursue with life and the love of Christ. And it requires a supernatural, spirit-powered strength, patience, and endurance to love like this, especially those who we consider enemies. I think what Paul is trying to say, to summarize, is we are called to actually live and love like Jesus. Maybe you've heard me say that a time or two. It's what he's saying. To shine his light at all times. And it isn't easy. I'll be honest, I screw up with this one all the time. I was deeply challenged a couple weeks ago when I just miserably failed at this. I was visiting my 90-year-old grandma in Texas uh, a few weeks back for her birthday, and and while I wanted to bless her, because her eyesight is failing, and she spends most of her day stuck in a chair, and so she's just watching TV all day, and her favorite show is Law and & Order. 
Um, she loves to see good old Jack McCoy solving cases. And uh, because her TV was only 30 inches and she's basically blind, she couldn't see it. And so she resolved to just watching reruns all day long because she couldn't know what was going on unless because she, she couldn't see. So I want to replace her little 30-inch one on her bedroom, which is a few feet from her, with a giant 85-inch one, just a few inches from her face, to make sure that she could see Jack's face as well. And so that was my idea to bless her, was to let her see Jack in all his glory. And so by the, by the time I, so I just said we were going out to dinner, I looked online, and Best Buy had a deal on an 85-inch TV that I wanted to pick up. And so on the way back from dinner with her and my mom, or my, my, my aunts, I, I ran into Best Buy to check. I was in a hurry. I just wanted to grab it, bring it home, because I was leaving the next day. I only had like 36 hours there. I'm running into Best Buy at that point, and the TV set was a mess. I've not been in a Best Buy since being back to America. Uh, it was impressive. Um, of, uh, the, the, like half the stock seemed to be gone. Labels were all over the place. I, don't, I can't get sued for this. I'm doing these things online. Why can I? I don't know how this works. But, um, whoops, I uh, shouldn't say that online, I guess. But uh, uh, it was just an absolute disaster of a place. I mean, I couldn't find any help. I'm going up and down the aisles trying to find this thing. Couldn't find any employees going up and down the aisles. I know people are waiting on me trying to get back. And then finally, I find a few employees way off in a corner, all huddled together talking. I'm like, can someone help me? Like, where's this? They looked annoyed, and, and I said, they said, it's over there. And so I ran over there again. It wasn't there. I came back. I'm like, seriously, can you help me? They're like, well, I guess it's out of stock. I'm like, it says you got multiple ones. Can someone help me? They're like, fine. They seemed annoyed. They look at the computer. I mean, I'm so annoyed at this point because I have to go. And I'll be honest, at that moment, um, I wasn't reflecting the light of Christ. Um, <laughs> I went full Karen on them, or what's the male version of Karen? <laughs> Um, is that Kevin? I don't know what the right, the right phrase is. And I totally did the I want to talk to your manager thing. I mean, I berated them for their laziness. I said I want to talk to your manager. I just started laying into them what a terrible situation this was. And then as I'm laying into them, I look down, and the, I only have one shirt that says Jesus across it. It's just one shirt. And I'm wearing that shirt right there. It says big words Jesus. And I'm looking down, and all of a sudden I'm just filled with shame. And I just said, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Don't worry about it. And I sheepishly, with my head down, just walked out of the store and just said, Lord, I am sorry. I am not reflecting your light or your life. I had a very humbling time with the Lord that night. No light was shining through me. The opposite. Just darkness was coming through. Not saying we can never address terrible service, but we must do it with love and gentleness and kindness and generosity of spirit. The next day, I ran to Costco and just grabbed whichever one they had and installed it, and my grandma was downright giddy when she finally saw Jack's face again, so it was beautiful. Um, I loved the joy in her face. She, even though I was there, she didn't even want to hang out with me. She just wanted to watch TV. She was so excited. Um, we are called to reflect the light of Jesus. Whatever, wherever we're not reflecting his light, maybe it's anger, maybe it's sexual immorality, maybe it's greed, Maybe it's buying into the polarization of politics. Whatever it is, we must repent and let the light of Christ shine upon us and be reflected to the world. That's how Paul finishes this message. He says in verse 13, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. Paul says we must reflect him into the darkness because when they experience light, they, the darkness, becomes light. Isn't that awesome? Paul says that as we reflect the light of Christ into a dark world, even the dark areas will experience the light of Christ in us. And as a result of that, when they experience the light of Christ in us, through us, they too will become children of light. Do we believe this? 
Are we willing to live this out and make the sacrifices necessary to reorder our lives in such a way? Because this is our calling as believers, to be light in the darkness. Paul is not talking here about just telling people why they are wrong. That is not what light is. It's not saying that I'm going to be light by forwarding or posting some YouTube video where so-and-so I agree with destroys and humiliates so-and-so they agree with. That is not being light. This only happens when we as children of light who were formerly darkness enter into the light and see the light and now we go out into the darkness and reflect his goodness, his righteousness, his love, his life, and his truth to the darkness. That is our job. That is our calling to be his light into a dark world. It's one of the reasons it's such a gift that we get to live here in the Seattle area, one of the darkest cities in the country. I often say that this is the reason why we moved to Seattle. We wanted to be in Seattle, San Francisco, or Portland. The only places we wanted to be in America and moving back to America is we knew there were some of the darkest places around. And it's why I can't understand when people want to flee from this area to places that are more comfortable. You know, I was FaceTiming my dear buddy, Emmanuel Muhammad. Praise God, he's probably going to come visit us this summer and spend some time here with us. Emmanuel, for those that are more recent, is one of the missionaries we support, a dear friend of mine. He is a, a Nigerian brother, but a former uh, Islamic cleric who has given, given his life to Christ and now has the most amazing ministry I've ever heard of in the world of seeing countless Muslims come to Christ in literally the most dangerous place on the planet. There's no place in the world more dangerous for Christians than the place that he works in. And it's incredible work that they're doing. Almost daily, he gets threats on his life, weekly attempts on his life, Many of the Muslims who have accepted Christ have been martyred in this area, and he continues to serve God in the darkest place on the planet. Anyways, I was talking this past week, and he's like, so give me an update on you, which is always weird, because when I say, give me your update, he's like, well, this person came to Christ, and this imam accepted Christ, and we did this, and all these hundred people accepted Christ, and this person was healed. He's like, tell me what's going on with you. I'm like, well, um, almost as cool. Um, but... Uh, anyways, I was sharing what's going on, and I talked about, you know, the last couple of years in the Seattle area that it's been really sad to see that almost like half of the churches in America, half the people of the churches in this area have moved to very conservative parts of the country, fleeing the darkness of Seattle. And as I was sharing with that, he interrupted me and he says, James, have you told them what the Bible says? <laughs> and he's, he was just confused. He, it, wasn't, it was just so confused upon his face. And he said, James, don't they know that we are called to be light to the darkness? Well, he says, why would Christians run for the light instead of run into the darkness? I mean, it wasn't, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a criticism. It was a genuine question of confusion. How could a Christian want to run to light rather than run to darkness? He said, James, we are called to be light in the darkness. He's like, you should tell them that. Um, I said, it's a little more complicated than that, but I get your point. We must recognize that this is our calling. This is who we are. We must live out this reality. We don't have the option of living in darkness. We don't get to be impatient and unkind, and uncaring, and proud, and bitter as followers of Jesus. Those are not options on the table for us as followers of Christ. We don't get to engage in deeds of darkness like sexual immorality or greed and all the things Paul's been hammering about in this text so far. The stakes are too high. We must actually increasingly be conforming to the image of Christ, reflecting his life and his truth to a dark world. We must actually live in love like Jesus. I've had some people tell me, James, you just keep repeating the same message again and again and again and again, week after week. When are you going to move on to another message, right? I had someone just this week tell me that, like, James, I'm starting to get a little tired of this, and I'm sorry, but I'm not repeating myself. I'm literally going verse by verse through this text. I'm not picking it. I'm going verse by verse. This is Paul repeating himself again and again and again and again, and when Jesus changes his message, I will too. Um, 
But Paul recognizes that not many people are actually living this out. Whether they don't follow Jesus yet, or maybe they've been following for a while and they're asleep. And so he finishes this section by saying this in Ephesians 5.14. He says, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I love this finish. And there's no greater time for us to echo these words than now. This is likely, scholars believe, an old hymn that was being sung around places at that time. But we need to echo these words, and we must wake up as a body of Christ. If we're sleeping, if we're falling into patterns that our faith is primarily something we believe in our heads rather than live out in our lives, if we spend more time on YouTube YouTube personalities and and news and social media that shape our minds and hearts than actually allowing Jesus to shape our heart, we must wake up. We've fallen asleep. So many of us have allowed the news media cycles and social media news and the Daily Wire and YouTube and Rumble and Facebook and Instagram to just lull us to sleep. And it's a terrible kind of sleep. It's a a sleep of an angst and an anger that builds fear and, and all this view of the world being against us and all this stuff. Instead, we must wake up and let the light of Christ shine upon us. So what is shaping you more in this season of life? Is it Jesus in time with him? Or is it social media and news and YouTube and Rumble or the Daily Wire, whatever it may be? Do we spend more time on that than we do actually engaging the heart of Jesus? Do we reflect Jesus more? Or does our angst and our mind and our heart reflect all those other sources more? If we're growing increasingly hopeless in this time as we watch our culture become increasingly dark, if we're turning inwards in this time and focusing primarily on protecting my family and what I own and what belongs to me, if we spend more time in this season judging those who are in darkness and not embodying Jesus' light to them, if we are consumed maybe with a self-hatred of believing we have no value and are not worthy of him, we must listen to Paul and wake up, rise from the dead, and let Christ's light shine upon us. I mean, that should be echoing in our ears. Wake up if you are lulling into a life of sexual morality and sleeping around or engaging in pornography or greed and all these things that Paul's been talking about. Hear the words of Paul. Wake up. Rise from the dead and let Christ's light shine upon you. I so love that picture of Christ standing in the temple the morning after the illumination with the charred lampstands on either side of him, that they were just towering above him. And from that place, as they're there with that purpose of the celebration being remembering the past, celebrating that God was present to them thousands of years ago in this giant fire. And at that place, Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world, not just of Jerusalem, not just of the Jews. I am the eternal light, the lampstand that never goes out. It will not be charred because it never goes out. And then later he tells them, now you are the light of the world. It doesn't go through me. It's through me into your lives as you presence yourself among the dark world. That's the light that doesn't go out. So today, if we're knowingly engaging in darkness, repent if we recognize our mind and our heart as being filled with garbage from what we consume of media and news, regardless of what side of the aisle, repent. Say, Jesus, I want to reflect your light. If you find yourself filled with anger and contempt for other people, 
If you find yourself getting constantly frustrated with service people who do poor service or people that call and ask for stuff and, and solicitors, if you find yourself quickly to anger in these situations, there are, you are lacking the light. There is a darkness that you're allowing in. So seek his face and reflect his light. A few weeks ago, we handed out these cards, which were listing kind of five people who we are going to reach in this next year to pour into, to invite for a meal, to spend time in prayer, maybe invite to church, whatever it may be. We've put them out again. Maybe you've took one before. If you haven't, please take one because we are called to be light. I just want to finish by saying we are called to be light to the world. And don't just take that as general love more. But no, put down a name, five names and be specific. Say, Lord, who would you have me be light to in this season? People who do not know Christ right now or maybe who have walked away and say, write those names down. Take a card and write it down and say, Jesus, I want to be a light to this person and this person and this person and this neighbor. And if you can't fill it out, go get to know your neighbors. If you don't have five people, go get to know your neighbor's names. And let's obey Jesus and obey his call to be a light to a dark world. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you, Lord. I, I, I'm so overwhelmed whenever I see that video of, of Eichmann or of, of you healed with Eichmann. Knowing that but for the grace of God, we would still be in darkness today. It is only because of your grace that we have, you have shown the light to us, that we have received it, that we can sit here today in this place and worship you and, and be free from the brokenness and the pain. And so, Jesus, we celebrate you. And Paul says earlier, we must respond to sinfulness. We put off that and we put on thankfulness and gratitude. And so we say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done in our lives, for shining your light upon us, for opening our eyes to receive it, Lord. And Jesus, I pray for all of us today, Father. May we not just receive your light, but may we reflect it to those around us. Father, empower us to go reach out to our neighbors, maybe if they're Indian or from a different culture or background, if we don't know them, embolden us, Lord, to, to shine your light to family members who have walked away. And not just by yelling at them, not just by handing them books and say, watch this, but by representing your love to them and your life to them, by being your light to them, Lord, which means we need to change. We need to represent you, Lord. We need to be your ambassadors, your followers, your apprentices, and become like you. Oh, Jesus, use us as your light bearers in this world. Change our hearts. Change our rhythms, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you are the center. Because how messed up is it when we put ourselves there? Thank you, Father, that you've shown your light into our lives. Father, may we reflect it to others. And Jesus, empower us by your Spirit to go out into the darkness, into the world around, and reflect your light into the, the darkest corners and into the shadows. Challenge us, Jesus, in those areas where we need to Conform to your image. And may we be bringers of your light to the world. Amen. Amen.